Sean, you sound like you're coming from outer space. Yeah, that was wild. Weird. Whoa. I have no idea what's different. Okay. Keep talking. We'll just kind of wait it check. out. Is it still doing it? How about now? It's like crackly, but also like phasey, echoey, like you're coming from space. It's pretty wild and distracting. <laughs> How about now? Is it still doing it? You're like, uh, you're like in the movie Zar- Zardoz. Weird. <laughs> um, I, it's absolutely nothing has changed. I don't get it. You're like a Spaceman 3 record on a bad stylus. Cool. <laughs> the perfect prescription gone wrong. <laughs> the imperfect prescription. Yeah, yeah. yeah the waves don't look weird, so my recording should be fine. Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman, costume designer for America's hottest swing revival punk rock cover band, the G.G. Allen Orchestra. Jesus Christ. (laughs) Jesus Christ Allen. And you know, we're hitting the road soon for our worldwide drink fight and jive tour coming to a city near you. There's only one real problem with that. What's that? I can't think of any. He's dead. Is that a problem? Well, the Duke Ellington Orchestra well outlived the Duke himself, so I think we can do whatever Uh, we want. Never mind. You can throw poop at whoever you want. (laughs) Well, I'm co-host Jeremy. My pronouns are he, him, his, and my metal genres are grindcore, gore grind, and funeral doom. All right. (laughs) Nice to meet you, Jeremy. (laughs) Nice to meet you. (laughs) I am co-host Peter Cook, and I have a message to the critics in our audience who nitpick our selections on I'd Buy That for a Dollar. Oh, give it to them. You run your mouth, and I'll run my podcast. (laughs) Ooh. (laughs) Brutal takedown. (laughs) Joining us today for the first time on I'd Buy That for a Dollar is a former WIDR DJ, record collector, and mastermind behind the Kalamazoo Drone Society. Welcome to the program, Brad Miller. I'm not G.G. Allen. Nor are you the Brad Miller from the Misty Moods Orchestra. Or the other Brad Miller from WIDR (laughs) FM. That's right. Yes. That got really confusing. Yeah, that was weird. When there were multiple Brad Millers at the station. Well, I was there longer than he was alive, so it's okay. (laughs) Yeah. No, 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 he's still with us. You're saying you had been there longer <laughs> after he was born. Well, you know, anything's possible, but yes. <laughs> well, Brad, this is great to finally have you on the podcast. We've long wondered what really strange for our listeners, Brad around the Kalamazoo area, he is from Kalamazoo, and he's known as having some of the most out there taste is is that a fair assessment? I would say I've been the a purveyor of the avant-garde in Kalamazoo for a long, long time. It's true. So we've been wondering what out there 
outsider weirdo record you were going to bring to us. <laughs> and I brought you something pretty normal, actually. <laughs> in, a, in a weird way, this is a strange selection for you. So a, a little bit of context. I didn't get this record right when it came out, but a few years after, after I had my first car and I had a, a Radio Shack under dash mounted uh, cassette player. And I went to the discount den on campus to buy some cassettes. And this was one that I bought and I actually first heard it on the aforementioned college radio station. And what is this record? It's Joe Jackson's Jump and Jive, his fourth record. Uh, came shortly after the third record, which was um, more of a reggae-influenced record. And this one, I was kind of like maybe a little put off by Joe Jackson because he was pretty squeaky clean in the new wave kind of second British invasion thing. But uh, this one really grabbed me because it was really my introduction to the whole Cab Calloway, Louis Jordan jive thing. And uh, yeah, got a lot of play. I think I wore that cassette out. Excellent. Well, Let's start with a song before we start digging in too deep. Where would you like to start? Oh, I think the title track is an excellent place to start. All right. Jump and jive. Side B, track one. Shalomar Swanee Short, let me take that jive once more. Boys, take right on down to the gate. Oh, boys, gotta take a side elevator. Can't you hear those hip cats call? Come on, boys, let's have a ball. Jib, jab, jump, it's a jumping jive. Makes you dig your jive on the mellow side. Hip, hip. Hip, hip. Jib, jab, jump, it's a solid jive. Makes you nine foot tall when you're four foot five. Hip, hip. Now don't you be that icaroo Get hep, come on and follow through When you get your steady food You make the jump, jump like the gators do Jim, jump, jump is a jumping jive Makes you like your eggs on the jersey side Hep, 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 hep The jim, jump, jumping jive Makes you hep, hep on the mellow side That is expertly played swing jive music. They they do it authentically. 
and this is well before the swing revival of the 90s. This is 1981. And initially, yeah, I thought this was a weirdly normal selection for you, Brad. But the more I looked into, the more I listened to this album and the more I looked into Joe Jackson, he's an odd cat. He's a, he's a hep cat. <laughs> true, true. <laughs> I think that this album kind of really shows how skilled he is as a musician. And the first two albums kind of... I don't know. They they put me off. I mean, I was I was really into punk rock and like especially West Coast punk rock, and then this album came out and it's like oh, like I didn't want to like it. I first heard it on the aforementioned college radio station, Wider FM, and bought it uh, right across the street from the studio. Yeah, so this this cassette uh, amongst a, a handful of cassettes were frequently stuck in my tape deck and this was my soundtrack to driving to school every day picking up my friends going to school and uh you know this was the time of you know bon jovi and def leppard and here i am listening to this jive record yeah it just it, it really blew my mind it really stuck in my head and even what now 40 years later i i know all of the lyrics to this and i hadn't i hadn't listened to it um maybe until last week when we first you know kind of talked about doing this and yeah just singing along and yeah it's just a total time stamp in my head nostalgic for sure so was this record a gateway for you to get into more swing stuff maybe some of the influences from this record or was this kind of more of like a lone window into that world well okay so this dates me i suppose as i'm a little bit older than the rest of you folks but um Back when this came out, like there wasn't the internet. So you couldn't say, oh, I want to know what, you know, five guys named Mo, look up Louis Jordan. No, you couldn't do that. You had to, you had to find the album and then like play the album to be able to hear the song. So uh, this much like um, the Blues Brothers record that we've also talked about, it was really eye opening for a lot of people at the time because this was really the gateway into these songs from the past that people didn't know. Yeah, this one especially, I mean, it felt so fresh from Joe Jackson and then working backward, listening to Louis Jordan and Cab Calloway and the other artists that are featured in the album. It's like, oh, okay. And then, yeah, but at the same time, it's like, man, I think Joe Jackson did it better. <laughs> I forgot, yeah, that was uh, another possible selection you were going to talk about was the Blues Brothers record, right? Yeah, it's interesting. These, yeah, these sort of almost like, collections of work from the past this is in like you said before the internet this is a one of the few ways you might easily hear stuff without having to dive deep well you know when that blues brothers record came out i mean i, I was i don't know 12 and i didn't know that they were covers i mean i didn't not know that they weren't covers but at the same time it's like oh you know this is this is how people at the time learned about things that happened before, which is <laughs> not as easy as it is now. Sure. I'm guessing the first time I heard Johnny Be Good was it's featuring Back to the Future. Yep, yep exactly. <laughs> yeah. My example of that would be the Rage Against the Machine covers album, which would be the first time I heard any of those versions. Wow. What did they do on that? Oh, was it Rage Against the Machine doing covers or covers of Rage Against the Machine? No, it was a Rage Against the Machine album of all covers came out in 2000 called Renegades. 
you know, they did Microphone Fiend, Kick Out the Jams, How I Could Just Kill a Man, Ghost of Tom Joad, Maggie's Farm. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's right. <laughs> Man, sometimes I don't know if you guys are telling the truth or not. <laughs> I'm being entirely honest. There's not a song on that record that I had heard the original version of before listening to that Rage Against the Machine album. <laughs> Great. That's kind of cool. Well, it's 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 cool that you can find something working backward from a band that you like. And yeah, this one especially, like it just, it really, like the, the Blues Brothers record really opened doors for me. Like, oh my God, I need to check this out. The Blues Brothers movie actually is the first time I ever heard of Cab Calloway. And I'm sure that was the same for a lot of other people. So it's, it's funny that both of your selections have heavy uh, Cab Calloway associations. And what a wonderful introduction. Yeah. I actually barely knew Joe Jackson before this. Hadn't listened to a single record of his. When I looked him up, I was like, oh, it's the, is she really going out with him guy? That was the only frame of reference I had. <laughs> the great incel so, anthem. The great incel, a proto incel, let's be honest. <laughs> <laughs> and... So I, I didn't have any reference for that, but I actually am fairly familiar with a lot of this music from my past life of working with people with brain injuries. I worked with this older gentleman who was really into this era of music, and there was a serious XM channel called 40s Junction that just played this kind of stuff, and that's all he wanted to listen to. So I got pretty familiar with a lot of these artists and these types of songs. So I actually have a decent reference for the originals, and I found that these were interesting to me because of the... He's capturing those old sounds fairly well, but his vocals are, like, way more intense and more... It's like he's blending sort of the modern, very emotional delivery into this old style of music that makes it pretty unique and cool on that front. Yeah. I feel like it's not really a covers album. I th like he made them his own. Uh, I don't know. I, I think it just speaks to uh, who he is as a musician to be able to pull off something like that. And I just wish that I was a little tad bit older. So I could have seen that tour because I'm sure it would have been amazing. Mm -hmm. I was watching uh, 1983 concert that would have been when night and day that album came out with stepping out the big hit on it and they did a song or two from this and they had kind of rearranged it for his band at the time and they still pulled it off it was it was incredible the versatility of joe jackson and his band his backing band is remarkable something i kind of learned about joe jackson is he's one of those artists that is very self-critical to the point where he talks about how most of his previous records are bad, or he's like, learn how to do a better job. And in concert, he almost always does reworked versions of his hit songs, which is like either very mm. frustrating or very cool <laughs> for the audience. Um, but yeah, he like, ref he refuses to repeat himself. You know, he's like always reinventing and always improving in his own mind. Yeah. The version of issue really going out with him that I witnessed in that 1983 concert was, acapella yeah 
Totally. I guess he he did acapella versions of that pretty frequently in concert. It it wasn't bad. It it worked. I, I could see some people like I want the rockin' incel version. Yeah, he actually describes this album on his website currently as a musical vacation. So even he seems to like see this album as being almost separate from everything else he made, which kind of kind of tracks. I'd say there's still a little bit of that on night and day and but yeah. Without having the risk of people rejecting something original that you're putting out to be able to do I think spot on covers of classics is probably refreshing and relaxing and as an artist probably I don't know something that's easy to do but if you do it well fantastic and in a way making a record like this at this point in his career is kind of a punk rock move you said that you felt he had kind of a squeaky clean image but to a certain crowd of people joe jackson was a few years before this kind of like an angry young songwriter and was like part of the kind of more of the pub rock proto-punk type movement and to some people he'd been kind of pigeonholed into that and people thought you know he can't make records that aren't that kind of pop heavy but biting guitar forward type thing and this record was like completely something that people wouldn't expect in his way of in like rebelling against his own image and the weird thing is it worked there was hits on this record like people responded to it i was a pretty casual joe jackson fan the 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 first record and the hits i mean at the time i was more into dead kennedys and black flag and that wasn't really that wasn't really my thing yeah in, in comparison to that it's definitely not punk rock but <laughs> yeah but no but but this this one really grabbed me and then kind of made me work backward uh from that point and even the um the be crazy record which was his kind of dipping his toe into the reggae dub genre then it like gave me a whole new appreciation for him as an artist like truly as a like really multifaceted artist Mm -hmm. and a lot of latin influence on that one too i mean from what i understand he was like out there in new york checking out the hottest music like you're more likely to see him at like a Hector Laveau salsa concert or like an avant-garde jazz show that you were at like a rock show at this point. I once made a post after years of just hearing stepping out on the satellite station at working in retail for years. And that was the only Joe Jackson song I knew. And I made a post about how Joe Jackson probably sat down to compose music thinking this will sound perfect in a retail setting. And then all these people older than me were like, no, Joe Jackson was kind of punk. And, you know, (laughs) that was credible music. And they all came to his defense. And that was this was years ago at this point. And that's when I first realized there was more here. Yeah, I I thought about you reminding us of that uh, social media interaction there. And I kept revisiting the song Stepping Out as I was doing more research on Joe Jackson and listening to this record. And the one thing I kind of realized is that song Stepping Out, you know, his arguably biggest hit from the, the year after this, it's actually very influenced by this kind of 40s swing music. His entire intention with that song was actually, how do I make a song that's half 1940s influence and half like very modern craftwork synthesizer? 
that, that's kind of what you get with that it's song. It's exactly what it is. Yeah, it's amazing. Also touching on the fact that he wasn't a straight man. So I think that he kind of snuck those influences stepping out and like real men from the night and day record uh, as maybe trying to be trying to out himself at the same time, maybe shielding it behind a really great song. Yeah, that wasn't uncommon. I know Rob Helford said that there was stuff he would throw in to lyrics from Judas Priest. He would throw in as hints that people like, did like living after midnight. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Well, let's do another song now, shall we? Shall we? We shall. Do you have a song in mind? Oh, I think that Five Guys Named Mo is absolutely my favorite track on the record because his scatting is so spot on that, yeah, it, it's just uh, anything kind of Manhattan transfer or the vocal jazz stuff at the time. I mean, it, I, I think that it parallels the best of that world. Yeah, nothing more avant-garde than a good scat jam. All right, let's listen to Five Guys Name Mo, side A, track six. Who's the greatest band around? Makes the cash jump up and down. Who's the talk of rootin' town? Five Guys Name Mo. When they start to beat it out, everybody jump and shout. Tell me, who do the critics rave about? Five Guys Name Mo. They came out of nowhere, but that don't mean a thing. They rate high, you know why, when you hear them swing. High brow, low brow, I'll agree. They're the best in harmony. I'm telling you, folks, you just gotta see five guys named Mo. That one was coming in hot. You can I don't think the original is quite that tempo. He he really brings a lot of energy to these songs. And I was noticing when I was looking at the record jacket here, he says, when my dad was my age, jazz was not respectable. It played in whorehouses, not Carnegie Hall. And I feel like he's trying to capture that old jazz energy before it became 
kind of like academic and high-minded or whatever kind of wild energy that it was rebellious yeah. music by yeah by the 80s yeah you're right it, it was now in the academic sphere largely well and it was introducing that music to a new audience for sure so he probably didn't have a lot of i don't know a need or feel that he had to respect it in a totally generic spot-on way and he made it his own and i think that's i don't know i think that that's the part that really grabbed me is it didn't sound like it was recorded in the 20s but it was hot and happening and got me to high school every day in the 80s at comstock high school in michigan something i kept thinking about with this record is hearing a record that's you know over 40 years old at this point covering music that was 40 years old at the point of recording, you know, it'd be no different than someone recording a Joe Jackson cover album today. It's just that like hearing this record now, it feels like, man, the music he's making, he's covering is like so out of context. It, it feels like you could be blindsided by it, but everybody digs back into music at different points. I was a little bit reminded of a record that we talked about Previously, a few years ago on the podcast, the Kid Creole and the Coconuts album that would have came out the year following this, they were definitely influenced by a lot of this music. Yeah, good and a very good comparison point for sure. I can't really think of, you know, offhand at least, I can't think of too many others. You know, obviously like the Stray Cats were out, but they were more rockabilly. Brian yep. Setzer did the swing stuff later, right? Yeah, that was... I, uh, when this album was first brought up to me, I thought it was rockabilly and I was like, oh man, we we're going down this path. That is a genre that is not for me. And I was pleasantly surprised that it is not that. Yeah. And this, it grew on me the more I listened to it and not that I disliked it initially, but I just, you know, I, I do have night and day. I have that record and that's the Joe Jackson sound I'm most used to. So this was a little different, <laughs> but uh, it, it's a fun record. No, it's an androgynous British white guy doing American black music and doing it very, very well. Yeah, he looks kind of like a late night TV host on the cover. <laughs> Which, did you guys see who, who uh, the, did the photography for this? No. I might butcher the pronunciation of his name, but it's Anton Corbijn. He's the music video director. He did like uh, U2 videos and a whole, a whole Depeche Mode. He's the photographer here. Cool. Probably early in his career. Well, let's do a little Joe Jackson history because I don't know anything about that guy. Personally. Joe Jackson was actually born David Ian Jackson in 1954 in Burton-upon-Trent, England, and he grew up in Portsmouth, England. He was a skinny little kid, an asthmatic, and he kind of got into books and music because he couldn't really do sports and was not an athletic type person. So he began playing violin at age 11. Then he got into timpani and oboe 
And by age 13, he convinced his parents to buy him a piano because he wanted to start composing music. And that's easier to do on a piano than timpani. Oh, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) More traditionally done on a piano than timpani. We'll say that. So he gets into jazz in his teens and began playing in pubs around age 16. And he gets into jazz because in school he's learning all this classical music that he likes, but his friends don't really like that stuff. They're into jazz, and the pubs aren't hiring classical pianists. They're they're hiring jazz people to play popular music at the time. David, at this point, gets a grant to study at the Royal Academy of Music in London. And this is where he gets the nickname Joe because of his resemblance to a TV puppet character named Joe 90. (laughs) As I have always suspected. (laughs) I was like, man, poor guy. Like, yeah, puppet character. That's harsh. But... It caught on, he became Joe, and he's studying classical music at the Royal Academy of Music, but he's also playing at that time in a proto-punk band called Arms and Legs, which he then quits to be a pianist at the Playboy Club, and then he quits that act to do a cabaret act named Coffee and Cream, which he then quits to make his first album that is a new wave album. So right out of the gate, he's doing all kinds of different music all over the place, which takes skill to play those types of music individually, but to just be jumping from one to the next uh, shows how insanely talented he was at a very young age. And I think that's probably why he wasn't more popular than he was, because maybe somebody wanted to put him in a box and hear, this is what Joe Jackson sounds like. And then all of a sudden there's a reggae album and there's a, a, you know, kind of a a beat jazz record. And then we'll go back to uh, the kind of British kind of new wave sound. And then, then he's a classical composer. So. Yeah. Which you just kind of did his whole career in like 12 seconds. (laughs) Well, there there it is. Yeah. But he initially starts out getting signed to A&M Records in 1978 with that kind of new wave sound of his most of, or some of his most well-known music. And his first single, Is She Really Going Out With Him, was a big hit. Launched his debut album, Look Sharp, into the top 40 Billboard charts. And it was... uh, hit the charts in UK as well. He released his second album, I'm the Man, the same year. And then the following year, as you mentioned, put out a reggae kind of ska-inspired album called Beat Crazy. And he's doing this all while touring constantly. So after years of recording these albums back-to-back and touring... He is finds himself in very poor health, and he 
retreated back to his family home. And that's when he starts getting really into 1940s jump blues, which inspired this album. Jump blues. Jump blues. He formed a new band with new players, including a three-piece horn section, piano, drums, but he kept his bass player, Graham Maybe, from his new wave band who would kind of stick with him through a lot of his career. And then eventually join They Might Be Giants. Wait, really? Yeah. Oh, wow. (laughs) Yep, in the 90s. As a bass player? Yep. Oh, interesting. So, yeah. Then his fourth album after two New Wave albums and a reggae album is this album, 1981's Jump and Jive. It hit the top 20 in the UK, but it really didn't catch on in the US market at the time. They were not ready. Just Brad Miller. Just Brad Miller. Okay. They didn't. Brian Setzer wasn't cool yet. There weren't gap commercials pushing this music. So, squirrel nut zippers. Well, Joe Joe Jackson was never cool. I mean, I think that's one of the endearing things about him is he. He was kind of a, I don't know, average-looking, androgynous, pale-skinned British guy. Balding. Yeah, yeah. And it, it certainly wasn't about the image. It was all about the, the needle on the record. Yeah, definitely. It's about the music because it can't really be about anything else. He plays vibes and sings on this album, which I found interesting. He has uh, Pete Thomas on alto sax, Raul de Oliveira on trumpet, Nick Weldon on piano, Dave Batelli on tenor sax and clarinet, and Larry Tolfrey on drums, and as mentioned, Graham maybe on the bass. Yeah, in the live show, I was watching Joe busted out a sax and played it expertly. <laughs> yeah, he was yeah super multi-talented across instruments, across genres. Dude just knows music. And yet he never played guitar, interestingly enough. Oh, wow. I just assumed he played guitar in the New Wave thing. <laughs> I think everybody did, especially his earlier records were more guitar heavy. And, you know, the, the genre was associated with guitar was the instrument, but that was never his thing. So so was he the keyboard player in, in those early records? Yeah, keyboard is his main instrument. Okay. But I I think in a lot of ways he also identifies probably most strongly as a songwriter and arranger sometimes. So there's there's tracks he did where he's only doing vocals as well. I think because is she really going out with him has such a strong Elvis Costello vibe to it. I can almost like see him strumming a guitar singing that song. So it never occurred to me that he didn't play guitar. Yeah, I had no idea myself. I just assumed because he plays every other instrument. Yeah, he said in an interview that guitar just never made sense to him. Hmm. Well, let's jump to another song before we summarize the remainder of his career in like two minutes. <laughs> What's uh, What track do you want to go to next, Brad? Let's listen to Jack, You're Dead. Excellent choice. Side A, track two. I think you did your homework. (laughs) 
So that song totally takes me back to, I'm going to date myself, I guess, 1985, driving to Comstock High School at 7 o'clock in the morning, and it was better than a cup of coffee. Uh, I don't even, I don't, I don't know how to describe it any better than that. It was a it, totally, you know, my head was totally into punk rock, and especially West Coast punk rock, SST, Butthole Surfers, Black Flag, and... Yeah, and then this cassette, and so when I first got it, some of my friends get my car. They're like, "What are you? What are you listening to?" I'm like, "No, this is great." And then I, I think I turned a fair amount of people on to how good it was, and they kind of opened the door back to music from the 30s, 40s, 50s. Yeah, it's funny to think you know it was ten years after that that the swing revival really started when I was in high school and. I remember first seeing Squirrel Nut Zippers on 120 Minutes on MTV in the middle of the night. And it instantly grabbed me just because it was striking how different it was from anything else at the time. That was really right before Brian Sessler started doing his thing, Cherry Pop and Daddies, all that happened. And so at the time, it seemed subversive. I definitely had a Squirrel Nut Zippers CD at one point. Yeah, I remember that you were you were into them a bit, too. Yeah, I haven't revisited that band in a long time, but I definitely had uh, a phase and an interest in this kind of revival music, probably around, you know, the same age that Brad did. So there's there's definitely an appeal to digging back this far at some point and just, you know, being thrown into something that is so far from any of your normal references and then understanding it and understanding the context of it. There's something really cool to that. Yeah. Well, Jeremy, are you going to, before I ask Sean for recommended similar albums to this, are you going to wrap up Joe Jackson's career in two, three minutes here? I'm going to do it. You ready? 
Yeah. We're going to whirlwind <laughs> through this. Uh, Joe Jackson gets divorced from a wife. He identified later in a memoir of his as bisexual. So he moves to New York City after that, where he puts out Night and Day with his big hit Stepping Out. That's a pretty interesting, like, salsa, jazz, pop kind of record. I really liked it listening to it. I never, I like I said, had never listened to anything by him other than Is She Really Going Out With Him before, like, two weeks ago. So mm-hmm. Yeah, that was the album that I had considered featuring on the program, but I think this is a great one to do as well. It's the oddball in an oddball catalog. Well, I think that was also his record where he actually came out as not, I mean, maybe he was bisexual, maybe he's homosexual, but I think that was the the record where he said, I'm not maybe what you think I should be. And stepping out as a title, the real men song, the lyrics to that are very, very much about a man coming to terms with his own sexuality. Yeah, if you care to actually listen and process the lyrics, it seems pretty clear. Uh, and yeah, as you mentioned, a few different songs on that album. So I feel like it's out there, but it was kind of a time where people weren't ready to hear it. So he put out that album. Then he puts out an album called Body and Soul in 1984 that is similar, but maybe a little more R&B influenced. And at this point, he's back in another period of burnout because he's just, he seems to go through the cycle of just like working really hard, touring like crazy, and then just being fully burned out. So he kind of hit a period of recovery there, kind of then starts picking up some soundtrack work again and starting to incorporate classical influences into his next few albums. In 1997, he kind of goes full classical with his album Heaven and Hell that featured guest vocals from former I'd Buy That alumni, Jane Sibbery. Oh, wow. Probably future I'd Buy That for a dollar artist, Suzanne Vega. That could happen. I feel like that'll happen. I was, when I listened to one of her albums not too long ago, I was like, there's some good stuff in here. Mm-hmm. It's not all just the dance remix of Tom's Diner. Yeah. <laughs> Most of it's very much not that. Yeah. Which isn't half bad. True. And also features the opera singer Don Upshaw. He returned to kind of poppy new wave songs in the early aughts and reformed the Joe Jackson Band before then taking another turn and doing a Duke Ellington tribute album called The Duke in 2012. And he is still out there today recording music, performing. Uh, I did stumble on his strong feelings about (laughs) pro-smoking. I don't know if you guys... Are familiar with this? No, but I, I'm familiar that he is a man of many strong opinions, though. Yeah, he's a man of strong opinions. He moved out of New York City in 2003 when they passed the smoking ban in public and then wrote 
a, a whole bunch of essays and articles against smoking bans and kind of questioning a lot of the science behind the dangers of smoking, and in particular, secondhand smoke. And yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, so I guess that he was a smoker. Then. He was a smoker. He seemed to acknowledge like, sure, it's probably not super healthy, but neither is hardly anything else. He had a song from the 80s called Cancer, where he sings about how everything gives you cancer. So I think he kind of didn't buy a lot of the medical. He seems to be very anti-pharma, anti-medical community to some degree. What's the use in putting out a cigarette when you got to light up again? <laughs> Jubilee bop. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he was also vocally anti-music video for a while. And like right after his most successful period in the early 80s, he was like an early guy on MTV and then decided that music videos were actively destroying artistic integrity of music and was vocally against them, refused to make them, tried to get other artists to like agree to never make music videos. And it kind of only succeeded in uh, tanking his career pretty quickly, <laughs> maybe contributing to that aforementioned burnout in the early 80s. And then later on was like, yeah, I kind of just realized that you can't stop the sea. <laughs> yeah, that that's kind of swimming up tide in the 80s, yeah. I imagine. <laughs> he, I guess a couple more things I'll mention. He did a cover of Pulp's Common People with William Shatner oh, in 2004. Was he, he was involved in that, huh? He was involved in that. And he toured extensively with another Eyed by That alumni, Todd Rundgren, in 2005. And also with like a string quartet, I want to say, on that tour. A really strange pairing of musicians for that tour. So Were they collaborators or separate acts? They were separate, but I know Joe would play songs with Todd. I don't know if they collaborated with the, the string group but well in in the late 70s those two guys would have been viewed as contemporaries and writing and operating in like a similar genre before todd runger got weirder and joe jackson you know made a swing record <laughs> before getting wildly divergent from their own yeah <laughs> boxes they were getting put in well i mean carving their own path i suppose and not really yeah. caring about when anybody thinks, I mean, how many records did Todd Rundgren put out? And unless you're a super fan, how many songs can you name? Yeah, most yeah. people can name right. like three. Right, maybe, <laughs> right. As I mentioned, he's still recording, put out an album in 2019, and he's still out there performing. He's still with us today, still smoking. Take that, anti-smoking folks. <laughs> <laughs> he's like, I'm evidence that there's nothing wrong, I'm still here. Yeah, he is. I can't argue with that. So He's the man. I'm going to take up smoking. Well, before you do that, Jeremy, I'm going to ask Sean. This is an interesting task, Sean, for you to put together some recommended similar albums to this one. What did you find? Yeah, I decided to not go the direction of only talking about records that sound exactly like this. Instead, I think it's maybe a little more interesting to get some context of what his contemporaries were doing 
around this time. So one of the ways I prepared for this episode and did some research, I listened to a two-part episode that the podcast Hit Parade did, and it focused on three musicians who have a lot of interesting parallels in their career, Joe Jackson, Elvis Costello, and Graham Parker. And Mm -hmm. the Elvis Costello comparisons are particularly interesting because, you know, like I said, they were both viewed as angry, almost punk rock young songwriters at one point, and then had to deal with that image, break out of it with some experimentation with uh, varying degrees of success. And around the time that Joe Jackson is experimenting with this record before combining it all for his biggest hit the following year, Elvis Costello and the Attractions were trying their own genre record called Almost Blue in 1981, which was a country record recorded in Nashville with authentic country folks, and Mm -hmm. it surprised a lot of people. Yeah, I remember he did Flying Burrito Brothers' Hot Burrito Number 1. I think he retitled that I'm Your Toy on that. Yeah, and Elvis came back the following year in 82 with the record Imperial Bedroom, which has a good comparison to the the Joe Jackson night and day, because it's this record that takes these experimentations and makes this interesting new thing. That's very different from his previous sound. The only difference being that Joe Jackson was much more successful with uh, both the genre experimentation and combining it all into one thing later on. Next recommendation, another band that is, you know, core to the kind of power pop pub rock scene that joe jackson came out of a record we've talked about before rock pile seconds of pleasure from 1980 yeah yeah definitely figured there was given the the time frame and the i figured that they had to cross in some way one way or another that that would be one you might consider yeah and then my other thought is joe jackson in a lot of ways feels like an outsider It's kind of, he just happened to be making music at the point when it resonated with people, but he always seemed a little more concerned with just making the music that he wanted to. And oftentimes as with this record, it was music that was, it seemed to have no frame of reference to what was happening on the charts at the time. And another guy we've talked about recently who had a similar attitude, a man that lived outside of time is Leon Redbone, who Brad was originally supposed to come on and talk about, and we had to reschedule and then talked about a different record, but I'm recommending the Leon Redbone album from branch to branch from 1981, same year as today's selection. I think that Nick Lowe is also a good kind of cross-reference point, as well as a lot of the singers, songwriter stuff from the early Stiff Records era. Sure. Yeah. Of course he was part of Rockpile. As Sean had suggested. Yeah. Thank you for doing that, Sean. And Brad, before we wrap things up here, is there anything that you would like to promote for our listeners to check out? Anything you do? Like me personally? Yeah, you. Oh, okay. Me. This, oh, un- wow. Unrelated to the, the album we're featuring today, just stuff you do you want to have people check out. Uh, so I'm currently, I think, involved in three bands, and they all have Kalamazoo in the name. So there's Wowza and Kalamazoo, the Kalamazoo Drone Society, and the Chance Operations Collective of Kalamazoo, which plays the music of John Cage uh, exclusively. All of those have uh, band camp uh 
sites, sites pages? availability. So maybe get on the Bandcamp before Bandcamp explodes and fades away, which seems like maybe it's the way that things are going. But yeah, just support your local scene and support weirdos that you think deserve something. And uh, yeah. Yeah, I really like that Kalamazoo Drone Society project you got going on. I, I'm sure that you do. <laughs> <laughs> Why would that be, Peter? <laughs> I may be a participant. Peter yeah. might be uh, one-eighth of the Kalamazoo Drone Society currently. Wow. Hey, I was yeah. there for one jam session. Don't forget about me, guys. Yes, you were. Mm. Two out of three hosts have been in the Kalamazoo Drone Society. Well, let's keep it that way, huh? Oh, wow. Wow. Harsh toke. I get it. I'm pigeonholed as the folky guy. It's cool. <laughs> and the Kalamazoo Drone Society is recording a new album, and it'll be out in 2024. Yeah, yeah. I'm looking forward to that. Get Starting to prep for that slowly but surely here. So, yeah, if you like highly experimental music, sound, check out Kalamazoo Drone Society. Aleatoric. That's probably the the John Cage project, though. Brad is nodding. <laughs> All right. Well, do we have any final thoughts on Mr. Joe Jackson before we introduce the final selection that we're going to leave listeners with today? I'll just say, Brad, this is another cool one. It kind of actually reminds me at the top of the season when we did Laura Nero, the Gonna Take a Miracle album that, you know, Laura Nero is known as a songwriter, yet that's an all-covers album. And another thing where Joe Jackson renowned as well recognized as a an expert songwriter yet here he is paying tribute i think that if you're not familiar with a lot of joe jackson's uh music that it's he's pretty easy to pigeonhole into his uh skinny tie kind of second wave british invasion new wave thing but i think as this album is a, a good testament to that there's a lot more to Joe Jackson than is she really going out with him or Sunday papers. Like I said, this is the album that really brought me to an appreciation for his work. And if you don't like this album either, listen to another one because they're all very different. Exactly. Albums yes. That have different things that kind of shine about them. I listened to the classical one and was very uh, impressed with the arrangements. So yeah, he's very talented on a lot of different fronts. What would we like to leave our listeners with? San Francisco fan, maybe one of the few down tempo songs on the record. Excellent. Well, that's side a track five and thank you, Brad, for joining us. Thank you for having me. And we'll, See you all later. We're watching you right now, just so you know. What? What is? <laughs> We're watching all our listeners right now. Jeremy's getting ominous here at the close of the episode. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, thank you for listening to I'd Buy That for a Dollar. If you like what you heard today, you can always check out our Patreon over at patreon.com slash I'd Buy That Podcast where we have different tiers you can support us and get lots more content in return. So check that out, patreon.com slash I'd Buy That Podcast. True, we've got episodes on 45s, little mini episodes. We have mixes that the co-hosts make every month. 
based on the artist, which is awesome. And we have some spots open in the vinyl level where Sean will pick out a personally selected vinyl and send it to you. Yeah, it's special. And a handwritten note. And a handwritten note from the fellas. Yeah. I was just record shopping on the east side of the state last week, and I really think that you should maybe uh, rename your podcast. I'd buy that for $20 because that seems a little more appropriate these days. Yeah, it's been getting harder and harder (laughs) each as this podcast has gone on. So yeah, we're, we're trying to emphasize that to our, the, the highly critical ri- listeners that we addressed at the top. I'd, I'd buy that for $12. <laughs> yeah. There we go. You got to come out to these East coast flea markets. The dollar bins are still alive and well out here. Yeah. It all depends on where you are. All right. Well, my name is Peter cook. I'm co-host Jeremy. I'm Sean Hartman. Brad Miller. Thank you for listening. Pistol at his head.